Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Matthew Salises, whose new book, Craft in the Real World, Rethinking Fiction Writing and Workshopping, is out now from Catapult. Matthew is also the author of three novels, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear, The Hundred Year Flood, and I'm Not Saying, I'm Just Saying. He was adopted from Korea and currently lives in Iowa. If I think about like what the workshop can do, I actually think the original model cuts off the two main things that the workshop can do best, which is like talk about a work in progress, you know, talk about the author's process, which you can't do if the author can't talk, and access the kind of diversity of writers in the room and their diverse experiences and literary histories and proclivities, right? And that is not something that really the workshop is designed to allow for or maximize. Craft in the Real World is an exciting and important book. A call to reimagine not just how we talk about craft, but why we talk about it the way that we do. Matthew asks us to consider, what is craft? What do we really mean when we say things like relatability or believability? Why do we emphasize the narrative arc or a structure dictated by conflict? Where do the norms for American literary fiction come from? And, crucially, who benefits from them and who is excluded from them? Matthew argues that craft is a set of expectations. Entangled in these expectations is power, the power of storytelling, narrative, point of view, and of sociopolitical standing. Anyone who's ever sat around a workshop table knows how these power dynamics can play out for ill. Prescriptive feedback, uninformed reading, marginalization. This is especially true, Matthew argues, when we follow the traditional workshop format in which the author being workshopped must remain silent. An experience that can feel, in the wrong situation, like being put on trial for your ideas. One's craft, Matthew writes, is inseparable from one's identity. Yet workshops were designed by and for one specific identity, a white, cis, male point of view that has shaped literature and MFA programs for decades. In the essays in this book, Matthew offers ideas for how we might workshop differently. We discuss some of those ideas here, as well as the most ill-used terms in craft discussions and the words that Matthew has banned from his own workshops. At WMFA's Patreon page, we talk about the workshop experience that led Matthew down a two-year dead end for his own novel in progress, and how he got himself turned back around. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. So I'm very excited to talk to you about this book. And and it was funny, actually, just because the galleys I've been reading for so long have been e-galleys. And so I have to have a physical book also felt really nice. And it's all just, <laughs> um, it's all just dog ears and exclamation points and stars. So I'm going to try to make something of that to, to start to, to have a, a real conversation. Um, but I thought that maybe it would be helpful to start off if you want to talk a little bit about your own experience um, with the kind of workshop model, you know, you've been a student, you're, you're a professor. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of informed your decision to, to write this book in the first place? Sure. As a student, my workshops were kind of up and down. You know, it depended a lot on the professor. The I think the model of the silent author and, um, you know, everybody kind of reading the story, writing their workshop letters and saying what they wrote in class, uh, depends a lot on the person leading the discussion so that um, it really requires somebody who can guide the discussion toward uh, more helpful 
uh, topics and and also be like a firm hand in shutting down things that aren't as helpful. Uh, and so it depends so much, I think, on instructor leadership. And so I had had some pretty not great workshops. I had this whole novel workshop once where everybody's novel in the class kept getting worse except for one person's who's who's was like the model that the professor uh liked and i just thought to myself oh i'm never this is never gonna happen to me and i realized like two years later that i had let it happen to me i also had a a great workshop instructor named marco livesey who's my thesis advisor for my mfa who was able to make the model like work pretty well or probably as well as it can work when i went into teaching after my mfa I realized pretty quickly that there was a, a clear kind of limit on how high you could go with the with the model, and um, I just felt like it it wasn't working for most writers. Like there were some writers that it definitely helped who just needed to hear what other people had to say, who had brought the story as far as they could, and they couldn't really kind of see around their own uh, thoughts as well, and they needed somebody to kind of tell them what they were. But most writers were not like that. I would say probably 90% of the students I had then, but overall, uh, probably even more. I just realized in that first year, that first you know semester or quarter or whatever, that it wasn't going to work for me. And I spent a whole AWP, uh, which is the Writers Conference, um, just asking a bunch of writers I knew and, and who I was meeting for the first time sometimes, what they did in their workshops. Um, there's this kind of well-known study about creative writing pedagogy that says it's there is <laughs> basically that there really is no kind of standardized pedagogy and that it all depends on on lore and what you've learned as a student and and what you can get from just talking to other people and so there was nowhere for me to go really to learn how to teach uh, and this was the best thing I had and I heard a lot of the same thing that I had already been through and known uh, was not working for for me. Um, as a student or as a, as a professor, and and it wasn't until somebody said, uh, Nami, the writer Nami Moon said, "I just teach every workshop differently uh, because every story is different." That I thought, "Oh my gosh, of course, right?" Like this, this is what I've been waiting to hear. Just like this very obvious thing that I should have thought of on my own, but was just not in the realm of my experience yet. Um, and so when I started to to teach workshops differently for different stories that really opened the door to a lot of experimentation. The individual authors, I think, got much more of what they wanted and needed out of their workshops. Um, and we were able to kind of go to different places and, and even you know hear the author talk um, in a way that we weren't able to before. That one sentence really <laughs> changed everything for me. It's really striking. And, and that sentence makes makes perfect sense with this, you know, with this line of thinking and with a lot of the the arguments that you make in the book. But I just kept thinking as I was reading, like, that the problem with the American model is that it's the American model. It's like there's such a white patriarchal supremacist underpinning. There's such a capitalist underpinning. And, and some of that was eye-opening to me. Some of it was not as, like, I think anybody who's not a, a straight white guy who's been in a workshop has probably experienced uh, to some degree right. or another. Um, <laughs> I mean, just in, on the on the level of history that the workshop model actually began with these kind of anti-communist intentions was really surprising to me. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure, I find it totally fascinating. Though, I mean, I, I should say there was actually a ton of funding, right, being brought into the Iowa Writers Workshop, and and that constituted a small part of it. But just the the kind of ideological um, implications there, right, and the idea that Paul Engel was going around raising funds by saying basically straight out that he that his workshop model would you know fight an ideological war against communism uh, would teach writers to uh, kind of uphold American values of individualism democracy you know if you think of the ways that we've talked about craft they really do kind of fit the individualist person who has a lot of privilege and agency and drives all of the action it's all kind of based on one person's decision-making power. Um, that model is very well represented within the workshop. And I do think in some ways, yeah, you're right, the problem with the workshop is, is that it's designed, right, for people who, who maybe needed at that time to have their voices be silenced for a little while so they could hear other people. Um, it, was, it was made for people who had all the privilege in the world and um, believed that they could do anything with writing and maybe needed to hear from their peers things that they uh, wouldn't otherwise have heard. Um, you know, we've just moved so far from that. And if I think about like what the workshop can do, I actually think the original model kind of cuts off the two main things that the workshop can do best, which is like talk about a work in progress, you know, talk about the author's process, which you can't do if the author can't talk. And, um, access the kind of diversity of writers in the room and their uh, diverse experiences and literary histories and proclivities, right? And that is not something that really the workshop is designed to allow for or maximize. Right. It's not only that, but it's like this kind of standardization of what your colleague pointed out that's so that that like had that real light bulb moment for you of just like a thing that can't be standardized. Yeah, I think it was actually pretty successful in standardizing it. I, I realized by the end of that question, the answer that I forgot what the question was, but <laughs> uh, going back to like the idea of fighting uh, communism with workshops, there there is then like a, a kind of strategy of uh, standardizing a certain kind of white Western American democratic norm, right? And if you can standardize that um, in the kind of craft form where you're prioritizing uh, style and form and kind of uh, surface level techniques instead of thinking about what the content is, who you're writing for, like why you would even write a story in the first place, um, those things are much easier to standardize and can kind of go out into the world and also have the advantage, right, of the kind of the great American ideology of not having an ideology or pretending not to have an ideology. Right, right. And and so I should I should lay out too for folks who haven't read the book yet, because um, I think by the time this airs, it will have just come out. So probably most folks will haven't gotten a chance yet. You kind of break it up into two, you address craft and then you address the workshops specifically. And, and obviously those things inform each other. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. But um, so maybe we should start by talking a little bit about um, how you see those two concepts in relationship with each other. Sure. I think the craft is maybe the egg or something. And then, you know, now the metaphor is falling apart, but the craft <laughs> probably comes first. You have, uh, you know, craft books dating back to even like how we still kind of uphold the model that Aristotle um, put forth in his own kind of poetics. Um, so there have been people who've written about 
what you could call craft, the craft of poetry, fiction, drama, nonfiction for a long time. And the workshop um, kind of standardized uh, a Western uh, philosophy of craft or, you know, more like a kind of Western uh, moves that you can make that would satisfy a certain shape of story. Um, that's especially popular here, but, you know, often it's kind of popular elsewhere as well. Right, right. And and you repeat numerous times throughout, um, you know, this, this definition of sorts that craft, which makes a lot of sense to me, that craft is a set of expectations. Um, so, so a lot of what I think you're talking about in this book is, is asking people um, to identify their expectations and challenge, um, find, find where the blind spots for their expectations are. And, and, and I think that it's a really interesting, but a very difficult, I mean, all of this is really interesting, but very difficult, right? It's like, yeah, how do, so how do we solve for all of these variables and all of these different contexts and cultures that everybody's bringing into a room? I think one thing the workshop can do better to help writers with craft is to, is to really talk about where the expectations come from, right? So like even thinking about Aristotle, I, I mentioned the book, right? Like his poetics are a direct reaction to the drama of his time. And, and they're sp specifically about drama, right? Um, not the, the kinds of things they've been uh, applied to, like fiction. Um, and at the time, dramatists, tra tragedians, which is really what he's talking about, um, you know, subscribe to gods and and fate and aristotle was very invested in the project of the individual that extends you know today um in the idea that a character uh should have agency over their life and and that everything comes down to individual decisions and from teaching those theories my students are always talking about like they're the first ones to bring up well, what would, what about like slavery and pederasty? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, uh -huh. yes, of course. That's uh -huh. that's the context, right? You can't separate that context from uh, the ideas that he's putting forth. And the idea of the individual is not really an idea of the individual, right? It's in the idea of a, a property owning, slave owning person who has the free time uh, and agency that is granted to you when you uh, you know use others for your labor and et cetera. That underpins right the the craft that we're talking about, and and to be able to think about where those expectations are coming from and what they actually kind of mean in a real world setting. Um, that's what I'm trying to get at with the book is is just to really kind of pull back those layers and and think about uh, what it is you're participating in. Right, right, and there there were certain moments for me reading of resistance. In, in little beats and not because I disagreed with the ideas, but I think just because that feeling of like, well, but this is what I was taught. And so like, it's almost like it creates this kind of like existential crisis. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Where you're like, <laughs> you're like, well, but now what then? And it kind of, um, I think in a, in a more charitable way that is very liberating, but I think because the moment that we're in is me panicking all the time, then maybe I took it more as panic. Um, but, but I thought a lot about, I kept thinking about as I was reading and then as you were speaking just now, um, Claire Vay Watkins lecture slash essay on pandering, where she talks about realizing that she had internalized a white male ideal of literature. And obviously, like that's yes, yes. It's like a date. Yeah, and like that's a white woman. So I mean, it's a remove, but there's still, you know. And so then there are all of these other um, 
all of these other different ways that you can feel so disconnected from that. Um, and, and something that I found really powerful, um, you have a line in here about, you know, that we have to be careful not to set up the Western literary tradition as the norm and everything else as an exception to that. Right. Yes. I, I think it's easy to do that if you're, even if you're trying, um, you know, what, what you were saying about feeling resistance, I, I often have to catch myself too, kind of with students saying like, you know, what I want to say is, well, this, like this works. And then I think, oh, well, I, yes, like first I should explain why <laughs> this has worked in the past and for whom it has worked. And then I can, you know, kind of lay out the options for them so that they can make a kind of uh, moral and <laughs> informed decision. <laughs> right, right. Their own belief. But it is a, like a quick reaction because, right, we, you know, I think for many writers, we read a lot of books and, um, you know, and most of them are kind of in the same tradition and we get used to a certain kind of story and we, and we feel that the, that stories are powerful as they are. Um, and they're more and more powerful as we, as we come to understand what they're doing and, and how they're operating. And, and that's a knowledge we want to impart to our students. And, and that can be kind of difficult when we want to introduce other, uh, other kinds of stories um, because we have this kind of larger base of knowledge in one tradition, and when we introduce other stories into it, they do seem like exceptions. I mean, I've been, I say in the book, I've been guilty of of trying to just kind of cram as much, right, as much other things into a class as possible. Um, and I do think that that is helpful, but on some level, I worry and and kind of f- have the feeling that we are end up reading everything as like, these are different from the tradition that we're used to rather than, um, you know, this story that seems different from our tradition actually is rooted in this other long tradition, which we don't know and would take, you know, a lot of reading to kind of understand where these ideas and, and moves come from. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really curious, like how you've seen students, you know, as you've experimented with these different, methods of workshopping, um, which we'll definitely talk more about later. But, um, you know, do you do you feel like, for instance, your students are coming into your workshops with um, a sort of broader range of of experience and context and knowledge than than maybe you were in your workshops or your your co-workshoppers were coming in with? Do you think that, like, there's a different um, awareness with younger writers today? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in some ways, definitely. I mean, for for sure, my students, um, you know, my undergrads are are far more advanced <laughs> than I was as an undergraduate. Um, though, I mean, I feel like I consider myself to have to be like a relatively informed person, and um, even like amongst my peers at the time, to have been relatively informed. But the students now, for sure, um, you know just have a lot more information at their fingertips. Um, they're a lot, they seem a lot more kind of open to new ideas and they seem, um, you know, to make generalizations, but just, you know, and also of like the self-selecting group that become creative writers, they, they seem, uh, you know, conscientious about bringing in uh, what they know about the politics of identity and other kind of stories that we use in, in real life to, um, you know, to tell each other what people are, what they should be doing, or what they might be doing. Um, they bring those in pretty frequently into the classroom and do care about those those underpinnings in a way that, you know, 
I just wasn't thinking about much in college or probably I was trying not to think about, you know, like actively trying not to think about in college uh, as an undergraduate student. So those are definitely advantages. Um, what is interesting to me besides that though, is when I went into my first workshop uh, in like, I don't know, sophomore year, maybe of undergrad, I had no idea what a workshop was. Um, and I had never even heard of a workshop basically. Um, you know, we had had like, some conversations about writing in my creative writing course and one creative writing course that I took in high school. Um, but a workshop really was a new thing to me. And we, I, we kind of had to learn what the workshop language was and what it was doing and how to operate in a workshop. We had to learn all the kind of norms of silence and uh, what comments we would make on each other's stories and, and like how to talk about, fiction at all from the ground up. And my students come in more familiar with workshops in general, which, I mean, maybe they're having more experience with them in high school, but also I think it's more like in the popular culture, right? Like Lena Dunham goes to the <laughs> the writer's workshop in her show. Um, so it's probably just out there more. And so I do find some resistance from students that I think they probably wouldn't have had if they had no idea right, what a workshop was, where they're thinking, well, this doesn't seem like how we're supposed to do it, right? But they get over it pretty quickly. I mean, I think I, I don't often have an experience where a student uh, ends up thinking, I wish we had just stuck with the old way of doing things. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was interesting to read this and, and reflect on my limited experiences because I don't have, I didn't go through an MFA program. I've only, I've done workshops, um, you know, I've done like Tin House and done like short-term um, kind of concentrated workshop experiences like that. Um, so those are kind of like the beginning and end of my experience was that. And I remember the very first writing workshop I did was run in a very traditional, like, yeah, like the, the author can't talk kind of way. And I did not see that coming. And I found it very um, alarming. And I think there is something I think, and you, and you get at this a, a few different ways in the book that especially if the author is somebody who is not writing in that quote unquote, you know, traditional workshop, um, you know, Western realist literary tradition, um, there's something almost uh, like you're, it's like you're on trial or something. Um, and so like, so, so to be kind of sitting quietly while everybody like puzzles over your work, um, there's a certain, there is a power imbalance, I think that that sets up. And I think that, you know, something that I think um, becomes very clear in the, in this book is that everything that we're talking about here is about power, right? Like storytelling is powerful, language is powerful, craft is powerful, these dynamics in the workshop, like, it, and, and even more talking about plot, you know, we're talking about agency, we're talking about who has power and who doesn't. Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting way to get at you know, what is a more, um, a more effective and kind of more equitable way to, to talk about our work. Yes, completely. I, I just wrote actually, you know, it's thinking about it sounding like a feeling like a trial. I, I just was writing an essay about, um, thinking about the cold war influences and, and Paul Engel ended up kind of coming under accusation himself as a, uh, as a communist sympathizer and, and that it kind of further radicalized him to, you know, try to prove his innocence or prove his Americanness. Um, and I was thinking about how the workshop, you know, in some ways does kind of replicate the model of like one of those 
McCarthy McCarthyist hearings where right you have to you see totally. and people you know tell tell you how you've been divergent right how you've been uh, different from what you're supposed to be and uh, the accusations are trying to kind of get you back in line um, or humiliate you enough so that you like are, are expelled from society completely and it does sometimes seem like that in the workshop that right there's a kind of there's the mythic norm in, in the head of the workshop or in the gaze of the workshop really and um, the things that uh, are different from that norm are, are quickly pounced upon and and tried to kind of be pushed back into place. And I mean, I remember in my MFA, our our goal, our greatest like, you know, aspiration was to bring this story into workshop and have it have it come back with no marks, right? Like no with no right, right. um which is, you know, the what is the purpose of the workshop then, right? You your what you want from a workshop is not to be workshopped. It's it's just a very sad state of things. And I think that's such a natural feeling for a writer. I think that's something that, that comes up a lot on on the podcast. I remember talking to Disha Filia, and she was talking about having a mentor of hers give her feedback on on a, an early story that she had written. And she was like, my dream was just for him to come back and say it's perfect. Like, that's, <laughs> that's what everybody wants, I think. And, right. and um, the, uh, or, you know, at least that's what our egos want. I know that that rationally, we know better than that. And we actually just want to make the work better. Um <laughs> But I think, you know, like, I, I actually think in a weird way that it hits on something that is so, um, you know, for all of the, the fact that it, it, it can't be standardized, and this is not um, a way to, you know, these aren't widgets that we're producing in a factory, like all of these works are unique. I think, at least speaking from my writing experience, like, there is a part of me that just kind of wants to be told what the rules are and what to do, you know, because it's so it's so hard, right? It's just, there's so much freedom that you're like, so I think something about um, feeling like you've like, that there's like a code and you cracked it. Like, you know, I think there's something like perversely kind of more appealing about that. Does that make any sense? That that deeply appeals (laughs) to me for sure. (laughs) I I would love to crack the code. I, you know, I, I also think like, I've been thinking about the experience of publishing a book and then starting another book and how you feel like after when you've done one, you're like, I've got it. I've cracked. I finally got it. Right. And then you start the next one. You're like, why do I not know anything about writing? Like I just, I just wrote this book. <laughs> I know I could do it. <laughs> like, could I only write that um, book? Maybe I could only write that book and I can't write this book. You cracked the code of one book is the problem. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. It's a fascinating thing. My students, I come to workshop. I mean, I think they're, it's almost strange to see how excited they are, right? To get like, to bring it in and and to have us help them to do what they want to do. Um, it's it's a definitely a different experience than what I experienced going in and 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 kind of the fear, right? And um, but also like the ego of thinking, well, they'll have nothing to say about this right. one. There's like nothing they could possibly say about this. Um, yeah, it's it's a different approach. It's definitely a different approach, a different goal. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about, uh, you have an essay in the book that looks at how we might redefine um, some craft terms. And it's, you know, there's a there's a huge list of terms that you work through. And I wanted to start by just asking, you know, there were a few that stood out to me, and, and I would love to talk to you about, but I'd be very curious what you kind of 
you know, from your experience on both sides of a, of a workshop and, and in all these different models, what do you think are kind of some of the, the most serious redefinitions that we need to address when, when we're using craft terminology? You know, I, I, I put tone first because I, I thought, you know, here's something that seems very essential to what we're doing and um, really foundational. I, I feel like if I don't have the tone right, I, I really am just writing into the dark over and over again, trying to get the tone before I can uh, proceed. Um, but it's something that's almost never defined, right? And, and it's very hard even to try to define in the first place. Um, I guess I tried to structure the redefinitions in a way that makes sense to me in uh, approaching them in the classroom. And so when I teach my students, tone comes very, comes up pretty early on. Um, we talk about kind of vulnerability and um, that kind of thing uh, and what our investment in is in the story from an early point. And then we, you know, look at kind of large level things like plot and character uh, and move from kind of the macro things to uh, thinking about the micro things uh, toward the end of the class or really like in, in, in more advanced classes. Um, so I tried to structure them sort of in a way that hopefully would be helpful. The question is like, which ones do I find the most important? Is that what you're thinking, you're asking? Yeah, or just sort of like the most, maybe pervasive is the more, um is the more accurate word just like where where do you feel like you're constantly finding yourself saying like this word is not doing the job it needs to be doing yes for well for me it's relatability i have this like yeah. a thing with relatability and i i really try to get it out of the classroom because not because it's not a, like a helpful way of of experiencing a text i think you know there are points when i watch a movie or read a book where i feel like oh i can relate to this but um that they're not actually helpful from a, like a craft standpoint that the author can't, you know, approach the piece of work in a way that they're trying to make it more relatable, right? <laughs> like, because they don't know who's going to pick up the book. You can make it relatable to one person. Um, you know, and if you have that person in mind, I think that can help you uh, when you're thinking about who your audience is, but to think that relatability is something we're really aiming for as we're making craft decisions. I, I don't actually think that that's what we mean by relatability. Right. That was definitely one of the ones uh, on my short list. And I think like it goes along with this question of like, you know, um, I had uh, Simon Hahn on the show a couple weeks ago and he, and we were talking about this essay that he had written about universality and like what a bullshit concept like universality is. And and you do talk about that a little bit who in here and like, it's not a term per se that's defined in this essay, but it comes up a lot. And, and I think that it's the same. Oh, I, I think it's, it's different ways of saying the same thing, which is like, how can this connect to the presumably white, presumably straight, presumably male um, although presumably female too. I mean, I think like, I don't want to let myself off the hook of like how whiteness is this, um, unfortunately this norm that, that these conversations are always held, seem to always be held against. But yeah, this idea of like, how do I smooth out what's different and unique about this and turn it into this kind of every person experience? Right. Yes. Yeah. And it leads to very like questionable decisions. I, I think, you know, I, for a while, I had a lot of students 
Uh, this happens less now, I guess, but maybe probably because I go on a rant about relatability early on now. <laughs> but who would do who would do this thing where like there's nothing there's nothing identifiable about a person at all? Like they had no gender and no race and like no job, no like no socioeconomic status, and they would say, "Oh, it's yeah. the, it's the everyman," and I was like, "That alone, that's that's no man, that's nobody," <laughs> you know. But just trying to kind of relate to everybody to a point where you don't relate to anything, right? Well, it's like being afraid to like take a stance or like take a side or like state an opinion. You know, you kind of just end up. Or it's assuming like what fills in the blanks is the, are those norms that you're talking about, right? Right. Like, because they're all blank. You just have to you fill them in only with a kind of mythical norm. Right, right. Um, have you read Pew by Catherine Lacey? I just finished it over Christmas break. So it's very fresh on my mind. I have not. It's really interesting in that it um, the protagonist is able to she somehow makes like pulls off that like you you don't know their gender or ethnicity like the entire book and and people around this character are very confused about it as well. It's a thing that comes up a lot that nobody is sure if they should say he or she or like where they come from. Um, and it's just sort of the story of this kind of mystery person who's just ended up in this town and has to kind of like figure out how to exist in it or get out of it. Hmm, that's interesting. I'll check it out. But yeah, so so relatability was definitely one of them and, and believability. Um, believability, yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? I think it's a big workshop thing, right? That like actually my 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 least favorite thing about workshops as a student was sitting through like five minutes of discussion about like something that could have easily been cleared up by the author or like people saying, Well, I just don't believe that somebody could do this thing, you know, like one of the examples I think I use in the book is like a person who rode a bike all day, right? And and we had this like I remember a very lengthy conversation about whether or not somebody could do that. And the whole time I was thinking, well, like, what is, like, what is who cares? Right. Um, like there's, there are dragons. We read about dragons. Right. And at the end of the workshop, the author said, Oh, well, that was, that was me. I did that bike ride. So, you know, I just put it in the story cause I did it. Um, and it's just, it was just like getting at the perfect reason why the conversation is so useless right that the that what we're talking about when we're saying believable i mean people just storm the capitol building uh with like a face paint and zip ties right like what's believable uh <laughs> i don't like, i don't even know what that is anymore um but on a, on a like a kind of craft level going into it too it's 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 something about like what is expected and what's unexpected and and that goes straight to the kind of thing of like what is craft and who are we writing for when I went to Korea for the first time, um, there was this very, very popular movie, uh, and it was breaking all the box office records. It was called it's called The King and the Clown. It's actually a very good movie. Um, but I kind of come from you know watching Hollywood movies and even kind of like indie some indie movies in Hall and you know from America, uh, and also maybe like French movies and some European movies. You know, I'd taken like intro to film, whatever, in, in college, so I had some background in film, but I'd never seen anything really from Asia, which should say something about the intro to film class. Um, and and so I went and watched this movie, and the first half of it, you know, are these 
jesters, uh, court jesters. And they're, I mean, not court jesters yet, but they're kind of like jesters on the road and they're doing all these hilarious things and it's, it's a comedy and, it, and, you know, you're laughing and laughing and then halfway through they get to uh, the King's court and they're hired on by the King and the King falls in love with one of the jesters. And uh, from that point on, it's like utter tragedy and like everybody dies. It's, it's horribly tragic. And I was so shocked. Like I had never seen anything like this uh, where the movie just kind of like completely flipped genres from one half to the other. Um, and I thought it was like a totally experimental work, right? Like I thought, Oh wow, this is like, this is something I've never seen before. Um, and then after watching a bunch of other Korean movies, I realized like, Oh, this actually happens like fairly, <laughs> fairly often, not like all the time, but there are major tonal shifts here that is uh, that are like not something that's breaking the rules, but part of a, like a really much more interesting rule that I just had no familiarity with. And that's, you know, that's something about believability too, I think, right? Like I'm happy to read a story now where something like out of the blue happens, uh, you know, like the cat suddenly becomes a tiger and starts eating people. Like, that's cool. I love that. Right. Um, but many readers would go into that thinking like, well, what, how do we know this cat is going to do this? You know, you have to, you have to like plant the seeds or I remember all those different workshop things we had, right? Like, you know, put the clues in early, like make the rules clear so that the cat can eventually become, that's like taking the fun out of it for me, but it's just a different kind of thing about like what we can expect and like whose expectations you're playing with here. Like, who are you actually trying to satisfy and who are you trying to um, surprise? Right. And and it's like, a, it's like not only that, but like a nesting doll of expectations. Cause it's like the expectations that you're coming in, you know, as the writer and then who's your, who's your ideal or audience and, and what expectations are they coming in with? Who's your actual audience in this workshop? What expectations are they coming in with? Like it's, it's a lot to, um, to kind of triangulate. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think I've included this in the book, but that, that drawing of like the um, author and implied author and, uh, you know, implied reader and reader and uh, like the narrator and the narratee. And it does look like a nesting doll, right? It's like, right. The, the, the nesting doll is the book and there's like the real world on the outside, which is there. <laughs> but in the book itself, there are all these like different levels at which um, imaginary, people are kind of being formed by in within the reader's mind and, and, and expectations are being kind of upheld or broken, but also like set in the first place or like carried on. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. So how do you, how do you kind of navigate that? And, and you talk about um, these different workshop options that you've, you've tried out um, in the book, but how have you found success or relative success? kind of dealing with that question of expectations, um, you know, when you're in a room full of writers, like how do you kind of calibrate that? And and you mentioned early in the in our conversation, you know, knowing where to steer conversations, what to steer conversations toward and away from. And, and I imagine that that probably comes into play here too. Yes, there is a certain element of that for me. Um, but I, th I think a lot more, 
I, I try to take out, a lot, you know, kind of a lot of what is really up to the whatever the instructor can do from the equation, just so that like I, I'm, you know, uh, kind of making it instructor proof in case I have a bad day, right? Like, what if I have a bad day and then suddenly somebody's workshop is terrible? Um, we do actually a lot more preparation than I ever did for my workshops. The writer, um, and I think this is a really important part of 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 what helps it work is that the writer, while they're writing and revising their story before they bring it into workshop or before they submit it to workshop, I'm having my students kind of record their decisions for the day. Like I made this decision, you know, I added this character in because I needed this to happen, right? Or, um, you know, suddenly I skipped time here because blah, 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 right? And um, I'm writing for also like part of that is the audience, right? Like I think that I'm writing for um, somebody like, you know, me 10 years ago who you know has this level of political knowledge and is like this invested in this kind of story blah blah, blah right and i do ask them to kind of try hard to uh concretely as concretely as they can um form an image of of an, an, you know, an imaginary audience right um so that we can kind of help to to inhabit the space of that imagination as we're reading and um, so they're identifying all of these things for us and including those notes with the story. And then we are reading the story and I, I lay these instructions out to them pretty clearly first without any notes, you know, as we would pick up a book just as a reader um, trying to record our kind of first impressions as a, as a reader and then reading it, um, you know, with the notes and thinking about like, if we're trying to occupy this position of the imagined audience here, then what can we do? You know, what can we see in the text? What questions can we ask that can help the writer to kind of access and, uh, you know, affect and impact that audience? Um, and so we start there. And, I, you know, I like to have, you know, especially if it seems like it might be a difficult workshop a conversation with the writer beforehand so we can think about like what they want uh, out of the workshop and um, you know my students often kind of pose questions that are on their minds in the notes as well um, so that we have certain things that they want us to think about uh, and then we go into the workshop and um, you know we proceed from there with kind of describing, it was in the book, but I, I use a kind of modified form of the critical response process, uh, which was developed by a performance artist. It, it goes through these various stages and, and I use them kind of loosely, but it's like, you know, what do you observe, right? And we describe. Um, and then the author asks a question or some questions that can help us kind of get a conversation going around what the author's concerns are and what the author like wants to talk about. Um, and then, you know, we as a workshop might ask the author some questions, which is the next step in the learning process. And then at the end, um, you know, she has a really nice way of putting it where people can make the suggestions, but the author can like refuse to even hear the suggestion in the first place, which I like. Um, but what we do usually if we have time is, is kind of go through page by page and, and start talking about kind of nittier, grittier things on the page. Um, and I, I think one thing that's helped me is to try to move away from, uh, you know, so I've banned a few things. And one is like saying the stuff that you've already said in your letter, uh, right? So I, I feel like a lot of my workshops, 
in my MFA where like, okay, it seems interesting. And then I go home and I read the letters and they're saying exactly the same thing, right? Like people are just kind of regurgitating what they had already written. Um, and the real like beauty of conversation, right, is the discovery of things that you wouldn't have known to say earlier, um, especially if it's guided by the author. And so we we try to kind of discover things as we're going and, and help the author discover things. And then I meet with the author afterwards and they're supposed to like, you know, evaluate the workshop. They kind of like write a letter about the workshop, their workshop experience, things they might say if they were workshopping their own story, you know, what they will do next with the story. So I want to give them like, I want them to have some sense of direction with the story and some sense of like, here's motivation for what I want to do next. And then they come in and we meet one-on-one and we talk about, you know, whatever. And, um, so it's it's a, like a, a more long and involved process. It definitely requires like much more time on everybody's part. But if I could brag a little, I think it goes much better than many of the workshops I've been in as a student. Right, right. And well, what I love about that too is, um, you know, so, so a lot of what you are laying out about workshops um, is about kind of focusing on, on, it as a the work as a process and like the the work as a work in process um and so what i love too about like having the students have to articulate where they're you know the decisions they're making and why they're going there i think it can be speaking from my own experience it can be so easy to kind of accidentally go into a workshop still a little like jiggly about what your intentions are and then just be told what your intentions are um, or just be like taking feedback and being like, okay, this must be what I'm doing. And so I think like, even though of course there's still going to be that jiggliness and there's still going to be like that kind of jello sense of like, is this what this book is like to, to have to articulate what you're doing and why um, seems just as helpful for the writer as for the class as like a reading, a reading guide. Yeah. I remember that Margot used to tell us it was some quote from somebody, I think, but it was like that the person who gets the most out of the workshop is the person who speaks the most in a workshop, not the person who is being workshop. <laughs> and I feel like everybody is like, oh yeah, I can identify the person I've been in a workshop with who got the most out of that workshop. And it seemed true to me too, right? Like, cause when you're speaking, you're articulating like some kind of theory about what a story can do, right? It just seemed like to me, like, why don't we let the why don't we let the author into that too? Right? Like, why can't they articulate for themselves as well, like what they think the story is doing or could do? You know, so that they're also getting a lot out of workshop, maybe, you know, hopefully the the most out of their own workshop. Um, I wanna I wanna ask you too about, you know, one of the essays that I I really um, especially liked in this collection is um, the reader, quote unquote, the reader versus people of color. Um, and I think, you know, to, to jump back also to what we were saying about vulnerability and, and not only vulnerability as a craft term, but vulnerability as like an agreement that is made among and within like a workshop. Um, I would love to hear from your experience, like, you know, how, how, in, what in practice can it look like to have a, a workshop that is more, um, I don't even know what the word that I want is, I guess, empathetic or more open to, you know, that that doesn't treat those norms as norms, that lets everything kind of be its own norm and like meets those things on its own terms. You know, when, when we're talking about 
anything really, but I mean, especially, you know, issues like race or gender or sexual orientation. Yeah, I think part of it is like establishing establishing that there are norms for a story that come from other uh, locations or influences, right? That like if I'm taking a story into, into a workshop now, if I were to do that, I would want to say, you know, like, well, like I'm writing for, you know, 30 year old Asian Americans, you know, many, especially like Korean adoptees who like have this understanding of the history of Korean adoption and the activism behind it and like Asian American literature. And these are some of the moves that people make in Asian American literature. And they're like, and you have to understand this in order to be able to like help me with this process, right. Which, which I'm engaged in deeply. Um, And the, you know, a large part of that I think is trying to identify who the reader is that you're trying to, um, think about in the in that process the um one of our first questions is about like can we compare who we f- who we had in mind as as the reader right or as readers ideal readers for this story as we were reading it the first time without the author's notes right versus the second time when we had the author's notes and like what is the author doing to reach their audience you know and the author you know obviously talks about that as well one of my things about the workshop is that it's like a piece of fiction or poetry or whatever is is an act of the imagination. It's really beautiful and also, you know, problematic in that way. And that we're all trying to imagine something that does not yet exist from what we have that does exist. Um, and the less information we have about that, the more it's just going to rely on our own personal ideas and opinions and experiences and proclivities. And so the more information we have from the author, the better we can kind of occupy a shared imaginative space. Um, And that's really important. And and so as we go through the class, if people start saying, you know, uh, the reader, I often ask like, well, well, who is the reader? And like, do you feel like you are, are the ideal reader for this piece? You know, a lot of my comments to my students in my letters start with like, I think, you know, you said the reader is this, and I'm not exactly like in that place. And I can tell you like what I thought um, from my place. And I can tell you what I can think, you know, imagining the place that you want to go. Um, and you can kind of compare those two things um, and, and you know, line them up with what you're going for as well. But if I'm just kind of imagining that like I'm the perfect person for this piece, which is like, you know, 1% of the time, then I'm going to lead the author down like a very long and off the path road in which two years later, you realize that you were doing the same thing everybody else was doing and writing the wrong novel. Well, that sounds like a, a great place, um, keeping an eye on the clock to to transition into um Patreon. But first, um, the question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, and I know that with you, we haven't actually focused on your writing um, a ton. So this might feel like a complete gear shift. But um, what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Oh my gosh, I feel like I was just having this conversation, <laughs> but like in the negative, right? Like, why don't we want anything? <laughs> uh, like, what what is next is like a big thing. I I and not because like I feel like I've accomplished anything, but like you put so much investment to your goals as a writer, right? 
so much is attached to like writing a book and publishing a book for for somebody who wants to like do this in academia or whatever you know like i had like a job and uh and i you know being able to buy a house and you know afford food for my kids so that, all of that was like in location and it was all wrapped up in um in publication you know those were goals for such a long time uh that i kind of mistook them for creative satisfaction and um I was left kind of thinking, oh no, like, you know, like, I feel like I have these things now, right? Like I have got a job and published a book and, you know, um, but why do I not feel <laughs> satisfied creatively? Um, so it is a good question and, and not one that I really have a very good answer to. I, I do think, I was just talking with a friend today and about how about how I shouldn't tell my agent this, so I hope she's not listening. <laughs> about how maybe it would be more satisfying to just not like you know maybe not publish again, but just keep working on the book on my own, or like just publish. You know, when my agent signed me, she said, "Oh God, now I hope she's not listening." <laughs> she said, "You're not going to turn into one of those uh, people who are just like going to stay in academia and write small press books for the rest of your life." And I said. Oh no, of course not. Like, and I, it wasn't, it hadn't even crossed my mind at the time. But as soon as she said that, I thought, oh, that doesn't, doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, are there people? I know, I know, I can like, I do that? That might be more satisfying, but I can't. But I feel like I've already promised that I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Um, the book is fantastic. I wish you success with it. But um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the LitHub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.